Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Happy New Year, church! Happy New Year! It's January 2nd now, and I suppose your nativity sets at home have been wrapped up and packed away. I know some of you shut Christmas down right away. Like, on December 25th, it's away in the manger, no crib for... But I, I wish Christmas could last forever. Come December 26th, the house is immediately de-decorated, the tree is taken out, and you're sitting down to whip up a fresh batch of New Year's resolutions and to-dos, starting with de-decorate Christmas, which you've already checked off. Party poopers. (laughs) The church recognizes 12 days of the Christmas feast, one day for each of the apostles, one day for each of the tribes of Israel, one day for each of the basketfuls of bread picked up after the miraculous provision by Christ. Twelve days. You can de-decorate your home all you want, friends, but here at the church, we are ride or die with Christmas, and we see it through to the bitter end every year. Now, for the liturgical purists out there, today is not even technically the end of Christmas. Today is not technically Epiphany, a day which is always observed on January 6th, 12 days after Christmas morning. Today, officially, technically, Presbyterianally, is the second Sunday in Christmas with Epiphany coming this week. But between you and me and the live stream, we're observing Epiphany today. And to honor this, we're inviting those brave souls who have skated their way into worship today to take a poinsettia with you after worship. (laughs) We're observing Epiphany today. Epiphany is that day with a really great name that we have a really hard time explaining. It's a period in the church calendar during which we study the nature of the light that we claim shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. During the Sundays between now and the beginning of Lent, we 
pick up the multifaceted portrait of Jesus in the Gospels and we hold it up to the light and we explore who Jesus was and what he was up to. What was it that brought people to him? What does it mean for Jesus to be the fullness of God in bodily form? What does Jesus do in response to his dual identity as somehow both son of God and son of humanity? Epiphany is an invitation to each of us to climb up to the workbench and study and consider and reflect, to even adjust our own behaviors and actions in light of what we might find. All the things that befit a period of time at the beginning of a new year. Epiphany means manifestation, a sudden inspiration, an arrival of an external thing within our internal being. Today is the first Sunday, and to kick things off, we're hearing the story of the arrival of magi, wise men, foreign priests of a different religion, who show up looking for a new king, all because a phenomenon in the heavens announced such news to them. If your nativity set is packed up already, I want to convince you to dig it out for the next few days and place those wise men near the Holy Family as a reminder to you about Epiphany and what it means to recognize, search for, and kneel down in wonder at the arrival of heaven in the midst of the wasteland of human violence, greed, and suffering. Set those wise men up and don't get bogged down by how many there were. It might have been three, as your set probably has. And it might have been a dozen, as our Syrian, Syrian Christian ancestors believed. But pay no mind to who carries the gold and which one carries the frankincense and which one the myrrh. The gifts were given by all of them, by each of them. They were not divvied up between them. They were a joint offering to the newborn king. Do worry just a bit if your wise men appear European with Caucasian shades of skin, however, for these were not German princes but brown-skinned Persian nobles. Their hair was not blonde and flowing tresses, but black as the starry sky. Their eyes did not gleam blue or green, but brown as cinnamon and cumin. Their religion was that of ancient Persia, where the heavens foretold the birth and death of kings, and where they believed their god, Ahura Mazda, spoke to humans through the movement of such celestial bodies. Their religious faith was incongruous with the Jewish faith, incompatible with the teachings of Moses, which outlawed divination. It violated the words of the Hebrew prophets, which mocked those who searched the stars for answers. Yet here they are, in the writings of the early Christian church, remembering a story of the birth of Jesus Messiah, and we're all so used to them in the crushes at our houses that we forget just how weird it is for them to actually be there. Ancient Jews and early Christians did not tolerate people who practiced magic or astrology, and they actively worked to marginalize them as much as possible, mostly because the search 
for answers in the heavens suggested a fatalism in the universe wherein everything is destined to happen and with a little training you can read the future in constellations and know when major events will take place and what need is there for special revelation from God in the scriptures when all you need to do is study the movement of the stars but here they are a key part of our nativity sets. This year, two of my four kids even played wise men in this year's children's pageant. So there they go, journeying across our mantles to reach Bethlehem in time. Who are they and why are they here at all? The truth is, we have so little information to draw upon to know more about their identity or their intention for coming to find the person they claim was born king of the Jews. We're guessing a bit when we say too much about their homeland. The gospel merely says they were from the east, but many places were from the east. Was their arrival an act of international goodwill and peacemaking? Maybe. We don't know. Did they intend to worship the king they found as a deity, as a god, or simply as a new ruler of a neighboring land? Probably the latter, but we don't know for sure. We never hear about the Magi again after this episode in Matthew 2. Were their gifts meant to be symbolic, as our Christian church fathers used to claim, gold, for a king, frankincense for a priest, myrrh to embalm the dead. Did the gifts testify to a truth about who this child was? Or were they gifts that were merely just gifts of luxury befitting any royal ruler? We don't know. What was the star that they saw? Was it a comet? Eh, probably not. Was it the planetary conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation Pisces? Like the one recorded in about 6 BCE? Oh, that sounds likely. Or wait, wait, was it a star going supernova like Chinese astronomers observed in the year 7 BCE? Maybe. Or was it simply a movement of God? A miraculous astronomical phenomenon outside of recorded history? Perhaps. What I'm trying to tell you here is, church, there's a lot about these magi we don't know. So what are we going to do with them? There they are, on our mantles and appearing in our pageants. How should we understand them? And more to the point, how does this story of the offering of gifts to Christ lead us to something, anything, that might address us here at the outset of a new calendar year. Let me start there just for a second. It's a new year, and whenever a new year begins, there's usually a lot of chatter amongst us about fresh starts and clean slates. We imagine a new year being uncluttered somehow by the baggage of previous years, open to new ideas, new habits, new resolutions to do things differently. And there's something good in this, in fact. 
there's great satisfaction in this sort of thinking, and many of us have had occasions to use New Year's resolutions to start exercising more and eating less and all the other sorts of things that we ought to be doing. And look, I'm not here to rain on your resolution parade, but I do want to sharpen it a bit and clarify more what Christians try to do with the arrival of a new year. And I'm going to try to tie it all in to the story of the wise men. As people who follow after Christ, we are not merely chasing after fresh starts and new sets of to-dos. Nor are we remotely convinced that there is something magical that takes place between December 31st and January 1st each year that means that the new year is somehow free from any entanglements from the previous one. It's rather impossible to truly be a blank slate, and it turns out that the people we hurt last week are still hurt this week, despite the change in calendar year. For us, the new year invites us as Christians to consider two key words, identity and vocation. Identity, who are we? And vocation, what are we doing here? Rather than focusing on a task list, the Christian is invited to consider, ponder, reflect upon, and prayerfully wonder who they are. What is their identity and what is their vocation, their calling, their purpose in the world? And these two key words, identity and vocation, offer to us an interpretive strategy for every gospel text from now until Lent. Every week of Epiphany, these two words will give us a little exercise of sorts to help make sense of what's going on in these stories about who Jesus is and what he is doing. We're going to be coming back to these words each week, so let's practice a little bit today. Take today's reading about the Magi. Who are they? What is their identity? Well, they're from the East, which means, in this case, they're not part of Jewish society. They're foreigners. That's important. They are God-adjacent. They, they don't know anything about Yahweh, or if they do, not much. They have a very different pantheon, a different set of religious expectations, habits, and practices. They believe that their deity uses the stars to declare historical events, but they don't have any awareness of Israel's God. That's who they are at the outset of today's reading. That's their initial identity. What is their vocation? What are they doing? What is their calling in this text? Well, they appear to be making a pilgrimage to offer gifts, to present a lavish offering to a new king. They bring royal gifts, gifts fitting a king, and they kneel down and they offer them. Remember in the Old Testament, there was a story of the Queen of Sheba who visited King Solomon. And when she came, what did she bring with him? She brought gold and spices. This is a common way of affirming a neighboring king. And here they bring the same 
things. Okay, so who are they? They, be, they begin the text as foreign, God-adjacent astrologers. What do they do? They seek after a king, they bend their knees, and they offer their gifts to him. Their core practice here is luxurious, impractical self-offering to Jesus. Look, I'm not going to... This is not uh, rocket science, nor is it news to anybody here. A baby cannot use gold. Nor does a child have any need for frankincense or myrrh. These were not like ancient toys. These gifts were given to the child, but they are a symbol of luxury, of excess, of means. And they're offered freely, they're offered willingly, even though they were not practical or efficient by anyone's standards. And the Magi appear, and they offer this gift. But now, here comes the curious question. We've talked about their initial identity. We've talked about their vocation, their work. But now the question comes, what happens after they have given their gift? What happens to their identity now? And that is the interesting part. See, while they've navigated this far by following a star, the text says that when they offered their gift, they were warned in a dream, presumably by an angel of God, not to return to Herod. No longer are they God-adjacent. Now God is speaking to them directly. God addresses these foreign astrologers and guides them safely home. As a result of them making this gift, this self-offering of living out this calling, they are now part of God's unfolding story of redemption, and now they bear witness that the light of Christ is, in fact, light to the farthest nation, the most distant people, the ones whom our religious creeds discount or write off. The light of Christ shines in Persia as in Jerusalem. And this identity and vocation thing is interesting because it suggests to us that Doing the thing we are called to do has the profound ability to change who we are, to renew us in who God wants us to be. The wise men do this thing. They offer their gifts, and as a result, they leave that Bethlehem house differently than when they arrived. They have drawn close to a spiritual well that addresses them, guides them, and journeys with them. They're no longer outcasts, foreigners, separate, but they are now close. They are near. They are witnesses to the mysteries of God that they've never needed to believe in. Who they were when they arrive is not who they are having left. And why? Because they've done something profound. They've offered their gifts to Jesus as to a king. They've emptied their treasures before this infant. And kneeling before him, they've declared him to be a ruler worthy of such praise. They were called to this moment to do this profound act of worship. They cannot help but leave differently than when they arrived. And I find this to be utterly satisfying. The most 
fundamental question is not about who we were when we came into worship today. But rather, now that you're here, what are you being called by God to do? Since you're here with us, you might as well pray and sing and worship and bend your knee and offer your gifts. And by doing these things, we find our truest identity renewed and rekindled. We find ourselves leaving here differently than when we arrived. Our culture chases after so many different answers to the question of identity. Some find their identity in how many likes we get on Instagram, how many people comment on a Facebook post we write. Some find their identity in what other people say about us, in how many people compliment our cooking or our parenting. We find our identity in our usefulness to our spouse, in our availability to our children. We find our identity in the number of dollars we earn in our jobs. We find our identity in our sexuality, in our gender, in our race. We find our identity in our politics, whether conservative or liberal, now more than ever. But the Christian faith suggests that our truest identity is not found in any of these things, but rather there, at the font, where we are reminded every single week that every single one of us fail to keep God's ways, and that we haven't got a clue as to how to put the way of Jesus into practice in such a way that it sticks every day from here on out. We admit at the font every week that we are, in fact, selfish and ignorant, and we don't know half as much as we think we do about much. Who are we? We aren't anything that our culture tells us we are. The bottom line, according to the scriptures, is that we are lapsed people. We can't conjure up a righteous iota of goodness on our own, and left to ourselves, we will quickly assemble a whole pantheon of idols and false gods. Who are we? What is our identity? Well, here at the font every week, we are reminded that we are sinners. Happy New Year. But that we have been forgiven by God and loved into eternity by God's gift of grace alone. Now, despite our sin— Despite our selfishness and ignorance, we are now part of the Jesus Project. We're now part of God's family, and so is the person sitting next to you today. What do we do? What is our vocation, having been forgiven by God? Well, here at this table, we're reminded that our vocation is to present ourselves to God as bread is presented at this table. Here, we are, to, are told that our vocation is to offer ourselves to the service of Christ. And just as this bread is going to be taken and blessed and broken and given, we find that our primary vocation, our primary calling is to be taken up by Christ, blessed by the Holy Spirit, broken and given out in mission for the sake of the world. We are not... God's rescue plan. 
We are God's ambassadors. We are ambassadors for the rescuer, Jesus Christ. And in receiving this bread and cup today, we are receiving our own vocation again. A reminder that each one here and each one on our live stream and each person who joins themselves to the work and witness of this congregation, we have been called into service for the world around us. Not to be served, not to be doted on, not to have others flatter us with how good we are, but to willingly, wholeheartedly, and with great faith open up the treasures of our lives and offer ourselves in service to the places and people who need us the most. Not because God needs us to do so. Jesus did not need gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but it is the only proper response to God's arrival to us. And in chasing after that vocation, I believe we find a joy and fulfillment that nothing else can provide. And more importantly, we will find ourselves surrounded by the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So may we follow the Magi this epiphany, and may our lives and actions bear witness to Jesus Christ in this new year. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say.